Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called What I Learned at the White House, The Parable of the Wedding Banquet. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 12, 2014. About 15 years ago, my family enjoyed a private tour of the White House. After skipping the long lines of summer tourists, we got a sneak peek of the Oval Office, the Rose Garden, some staterooms, and the Secretary of State's office. In the press room, we took pictures behind the presidential podium, a regular tourist stunt, I might add. Our kids remember the boxes of presidential M&Ms. My sister had a similar experience when she was one of two people from her state to help decorate the White House for Christmas. We traded notes about our experiences and agreed on two points. First, no one in their right mind would ever refuse an invitation to the White House. Are you kidding? And second, you feel sort of giddy nervous when you're there. You dress and act appropriately. You do what you're told. You don't mess around. The Gospel for this week from Matthew 22 reminded me of my few minutes at the White House. There are 17 parables in the Gospel of Matthew. If you had to choose one that was the hardest to interpret, this week's parable of the wedding banquet might be a good candidate. The story is full of violence. One interpreter calls some of the details, quote-unquote, beyond comprehension. The narrative switches gears in the middle, and then the parable ends with a cryptic saying. To me, these interpretive conundrums have the ring of truth. They sound like the outrageous things that Jesus said and did. He even said that he sometimes told parables to obscure the truth rather than to reveal it. Wow, try that in your next sermon and see how the congregation likes it. Rome did not execute Jesus for telling feel-good stories. We shouldn't be shocked by a parable that shocks. The Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan observes, the parables of Christ, even the innocent, pastoral, tender, innocuous-seeming ones, conceal just below the surface a whiplash, a shock, a charge of dynamite. The stories set conventional expectations, whether concerning God, religion, politics, vocation, status, and class, utterly off-kilter. The parable of the wedding banquet is easy to overinterpret, and when you do that, you get lost in the weeds. I suggest three simple aspects to this story that are important for its interpretation. First, this isn't just any banquet. It's not a backyard barbecue. It's the royal wedding of the king's son. It's akin to the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana back in 1981. By one count, 750 million people watched it live on television. 
Who in their right mind would refuse such an imperial invitation? And who would ever be the least bit presumptuous in such a setting? Nobody, that's who, except for the people in this parable. Second, Matthew conflates the parable of the wedding banquet with a second parable about a badly dressed guest. This complicates the story a bit, and it's why the story suddenly changes gears in the middle. Third, and most obviously, both parables end in catastrophe. This isn't a cute story that ends well. It's a shocking story that ends badly. And not once, but twice. There once was a king who prepared a royal banquet for his son's wedding. After the elaborate preparations were made, he sent out the invitations. Then comes the first shock. Some people rejected the king's invitation. Jesus says that some people refused to come. Others paid no attention. And a third group even killed the king's messengers. Such responses, said Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 8, showed that these people, quote, did not deserve to come, end quote. Would you have refused an invitation to St. Paul's Cathedral in London for the royal wedding of Charles and Diana? No, not a chance. But that's what happened in this parable. The people on the king's A-list refused his extravagant generosity. They spurned an invitation to the most prestigious party in town. In fact, there's historical precedent for such erratic behavior. On October 30, 1918, King George V and Queen Mary summoned Colonel Thomas Edward Lawrence to Buckingham Palace. Lawrence was only 30 years old. He thought the meeting was to map out the new boundaries for the Arabs whom he had helped to liberate from the Ottoman Empire during World War I. But when he entered the palace ballroom, Lawrence saw the royal dignitaries, the costume courtiers of medieval traditions, a small stool at the foot of the king's throne, and a velvet pillow on which there rested numerous medals. He knew at once this was a rite of investiture. Lawrence was to kneel on the stool while the king draped him with a sash, decorated him with medals, tapped him on the shoulder with a sword, and recited an ancient oath, all to make Lawrence a knight commander of the British of the Order of the British Empire. But instead of kneeling, Lawrence refused the honor. In almost 1,000 years of knighthood, Nothing like this had ever happened. What should everyone do? A stunned King George and a furious Queen Mary watched as Lawrence of Arabia turned around and walked out of Buckingham Palace. You could have pushed them over with a feather.
It's hard to believe, and it doesn't make any sense, but some people refuse royal generosity. After a second round of messengers, a B-list of guests accept the king's invitation. If the privileged people refused his generosity, then he would extend it to, quote, all the people his servants could find, end quote. And so at long last, the guest hall was full. But one guest stood out like a sore thumb. He was a party crasher who dressed like a slob to the wedding party of the king's son in the royal palace. What was he thinking? How could anyone be so cavalier? There's no cause for smug satisfaction by an insider at an imperial banquet. Rather, with privilege comes responsibilities. Would I have gone to the White House in a dirty t-shirt? Never. You'd have to be crazy clueless to do that. A more appropriate response would have been to buy some expensive clothes that I couldn't afford and would never wear again. The people who refused the king's invitation didn't deserve to come, and the guest who showed up inappropriately dressed didn't deserve to stay. So, the first part of this parable describes the rejection of an invitation, and the last part an expulsion because of presumption. Both scenarios end badly, and Matthew describes both bad endings with similar language. To those who refused his invitation, the king sent his army and burned their city. Those who dressed inappropriately were tied hand and foot and thrown outside into the darkness. This is the figurative language of a fanciful story about some literal truths, truths that are meant to shock us into our spiritual senses. Everyone without exception has received a free invitation to the kingdom of God. It's a banquet of excess and extravagance. The Apostle John also compares it to a wedding party, one with copious amounts of the finest wine. But as hard as it is to believe, some people refuse God's generosity. Experience tells us it's true. Other people try to enter the kingdom of God on their own terms and conditions. They want to write their own rule book. But life doesn't work that way, not in the world and not in the kingdom of God. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you think or believe, you can't bend reality to your own wishes. God's generosity is free for all, but it doesn't come cheap. It asks us for everything. We read of similar dismal outcomes in the rest of the New Testament. There's shipwreck of faith, pseudo-apostles, scammers who preach for profit, legalists and libertines, 
seed that produces various crop yields, indistinguishable wheat and weeds that grow together, believers who sue each other, and on and on. A merchant sold everything to buy the pearl of great price. The rich young ruler refused Jesus' invitation and went away sad. And so, said Jesus, in a rather melancholy conclusion, many are invited, but few are chosen. For books this week, I review a title by Adam Hamilton. It's called Making Sense of the Bible, Rediscovering the Power of Scripture Today. New York, Harper, 2014, 324 pages. In 1990, Adam Hamilton founded the Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas, with four people. Today, the church is the largest United Methodist Church in the country, with 18,000 members. Along the way, Hamilton has written 18 books, all of which in their various ways urge what he has elsewhere called a radical center that moves beyond the tired debates between evangelical conservatives and mainline liberals. In his introduction, he says that he wants to find a center point between minimal, minimalist liberalism and maximalist conservatism. Elsewhere, Hamilton has advanced the language of liberal evangelical or evangelical liberal. Like his other books, this one is rooted in Hamilton's 25 years as pastor of Church of the Resurrection. He's passionately committed to living the biblical story of redemption in Israel and the church. He reads the scriptures every morning as the authoritative guide to his life. He's also done his scholarly homework as a careful student of scripture. He listens to and ponders the questions of his parishioners, whether those of a dying child he's visiting in the hospital or an email from a university student. He's candid, wise, and non-polemical. In the first half of his book, Hamilton <clears throat> considers the nature of scripture. He surveys both the Old and New Testaments and explains how he got the Bible. The second half of the book tackles a dozen hot topics like the Bible and science, the historicity <clears throat> of Adam and Eve, the flood, the violence of God in the Old Testament, suffering, homosexuality, women, the historical reality of the Gospels, and the book of Revelation. This is a reliable and popular level treatment of complicated matters with chapters like the Old Testament in 15 minutes, seven pages. It's not a substitute for the heavy lifting of deeper study, nor would Hamilton ever make that claim. But it's a wonderful book you can give to friends with confidence that it will point them in the right direction. Adam Hamilton, Making Sense of the Bible.
For movies, we go to the country of Ireland in a fantastic film called Calvary, 2014. Father James, played by Brendan Gleeson, is a wise and wizened priest in a small village on the Irish coast. The rugged, the rugged terrain befits his authentic faith that doesn't shrink from hard questions, compassion, and candor. In the first few minutes of this film, Father James receives a death threat. The rest of the film is filled with cameo characters who test his face and theirs in various foreboding ways. Despair, wealth, adultery, cynicism, suffering, the death of innocence, aging, and, like a recurring baseline, priestly pedophilia. Father James has his own past, too. A wife who died, a daughter who tried to commit suicide, and alcoholism. He has experienced the whiplash of faith and doubt. He knows the meaning of giving and asking for forgiveness, not only for himself, but for his people and his own church. His genuine faith leads to his personal Calvary. In a final footnote, in its own review, the New Yorker magazine called this film the plight of a lonely believer in a world beyond belief. The title of the film, Calvary. <clears throat> Finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a marvelous poem by the famous John Milton. Milton lived from 1608 to 1674. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide, Doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask? But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed in post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 12th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.